democracy needs capitalism because for a democratic order to survive, there has to be some areas of life that are not directly within the purview of politics. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. That is, of course, the peroration from possibly the greatest speech ever written, President Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. The final words have been a rallying call for the voices of liberty and democracy, not just here in the United States, but across the world. However, those voices have been met with a growing chorus, pushing back on the ideals of democratic governance. The debate over whether we are in a democratic recession has become a mainstay of modern political discourse, with some even questioning the value of democracy itself. World leaders are increasingly casting the world in Manichaean terms of democracies versus autocracies. That is the context in which our guest this week wrote his latest book. This week, we spoke to Martin Wolf, chief economics commentator for the Financial Times, and one of the preeminent thought leaders in the West on economics and politics. Martin is the author of a number of books, but his most recent book, The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism, covers all the most pertinent issues shaping the globe today. What is ailing democracy? What reforms are needed? What is the relationship between capitalism and democracy? These were just some of the questions that we covered during this episode. There is also a policy discussion for our patrons, including the merits of Starship Troopers' citizenship policy, and a discussion on changing voter laws away from one person, one vote. No, not ranked choice voting, but something far more interesting. We're very excited to bring you this episode, and if you enjoy it, please rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you prefer, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at UndecencyPod, where you can reshare our posts or DM us if you have feedback. If Twitter isn't for you, and frankly, I do not blame you at all, then you can email us at UndecencyPod at gmail.com. Finally, that discussion of Starship Troopers, central bank digital currencies, and much more is for our patrons only. So if you haven't signed up, now is your chance for as little as $5 per month. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Today, Jorge and myself are joined by Martin Wolf, who is the chief economics commentator for the Financial Times and the author of an excellent new book, The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism, which is on sale now. We will link to the book so that you can order it, but not an Amazon link. Um, that will be in the show notes, uh, but it should be on sale in most bookstores near you. Martin, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. When reporters, academics, and politicians talk about a democratic recession or a crisis in democratic societies, they often resort to a 30,000-foot view and speak in quite lofty terms. But in your book's introduction, you speak about the importance of democracy in quite personal terms. I wonder if you could speak more for our listeners about why democracy matters to you. Yes, I'd be happy to do so. Um, the, the personal history is not that exceptional, alas, um, given the number of refugees there are in the world. But in my case, uh, my parents were both refugees from Hitler's Europe. Uh, my father came here in 1937, so a year 
before the so-called Anschluss from Austria, where he'd grown up. And my mother came from Holland uh, in May 1940, just as the German armies were pouring over the Dutch frontier. They um, were Jewish, and uh, so they left for their lives. Uh, their families, wider families, were uh, essentially entirely slaughtered in the Holocaust. Now, in my perspective and their perspective, the catastrophe happened. This catastrophe happened because uh, during the interwar years, a civil, civilized order broke down in Europe. There were many reasons for this, but the most disastrous was the Great Depression, which brought the Nazis to power. Pretty clearly, uh, the Nazis were a very minor party in 1930 and had become a uh, party with a third of the vote by 1933 during the Great Depression. And so I've always linked economic prosperity to the health of democracy. D the Germans had at that time a very fragile, young democracy created after the First World War, and it collapsed in during the Great Depression, in my view, very largely because of it. And this was over and above all the cultural pressures, the anti-Semitism and so forth that already existed. So I have two reasons to be interested in this story, which link, uh, apart from its being personal, uh, one is democracies can collapse in the most inconceivably horrible ways, ways that nobody could have imagined before they happened. And, and one of the factors that can destroy them is um, terrible economic policy and terrible economic circumstances. And this background um, motivating idea influenced me in starting to write this book. Well, this is a wonderful way to set, set the tables up for the, uh, for the substantive discussion here. And obviously, uh, Mr. Wolf, as a as a as a columnist of the Financial Times, you're expected to ha hold opinions on many different uh, economic and finance, financial topics. Uh, John Maynard Keynes is reported to have said that when the facts change, I change my mind, or something along those lines. Um, you open the book uh, by saying that your opinions have changed over time, and perhaps most notably your view of the financial establishment. Could, could you maybe walk us through some of that journey? and disillusionment with the, the wisdom and the judgment of the financial elites? Well, I suppose there's an even broader point to make, which is uh, I grew up in the 50s and 60s and uh, started my professional life in the 1970s, so I'm fairly old. And that was a time in which the, um, the post-war order, the post-war settlement, um, began to run into some really pretty serious difficulties. And they, they were genuine difficulties, as so often. Um, they, these weren't illusory uh, at all. But uh, uh, many economists and many analysts came to the view that we needed a more liberal, more market-oriented economy. And I was certainly one of them if, um, 40 years ago. Uh, and I think in many respects, important respects, I think this actually went well and I would be prepared to defend it. But it's become obvious to me over the last 20 years at least uh, 
um, uh, rather longer, I would say 25 years, that um, there are several problems with this. The the narrower one is is the one that you emphasize, that the domination over the economy by the financial sector and the scale of its domination creates many very severe problems, uh, including instability, uh, quite profound instability, and also, I, I believe, almost inevitably, significant increases in inequality. That's a pretty lethal uh, uh, combination. But more broadly, I came to the view that at some point, if the market gets too powerful in society and politics seems too feeble, too weak, then uh, there's a real danger that uh, in a democracy, people will react by um, choosing politicians, as indeed happened in the 20s and 30s, who um, essentially promise to use the sledgehammer of politics to impose order um, of some kind on these undesirable developments, often very ill-focused uh, on not on the actual developments, but on uh, social and cultural divisions. And this is what I began to see. So the problem is that in the end, there comes a point in a free market economy with a search for security and stability by ordinary people, perfectly natural one, starts to lead to the rise of authoritarianism, populism, demagogy, and indeed the subversion of democracy. And that's what I began to see. And that changed my view of the link between economic processes and social order and politics, and which I it reflects, which is reflected in this book. You spoke a, a little bit earlier about the role of the Great Depression in the rise of the Nazis in Germany and simply how failures of economics can lead to failures of politics. But flipping it to a, a more optimistic lens, how is it that democracy and capitalism work together to sustain and propel each other in a positive direction? I think this is a, the thing that I ended up trying to explore. And uh, so it, it led me to certain views, inevitably controversial. But the point I would make is that you know, 220 years ago or so, according to fairly standard measures, there weren't any democracies in the world. Democracies had existed of some kind before, very incomplete ones, but uh, they had proved fragile and were mostly suppressed. The normal way to govern a society uh, th throughout the post-agrarian period uh, uh, of, of human society was for a certain limited number of individuals, uh, often um, uh, with inherited positions, owned the land, which was the principal source of wealth. And uh, in the economist jargon, the factor of production you needed to produce food. And therefore, they controlled the people who worked on the land, who were peasants or serfs or slaves. And by virtue of their possession of all the wealth, they also all owned, controlled all the power. Power and wealth were the same thing. Now, once capitalism started, um, it created a new form of dynamic economy, 
to the surprise of the classical economists, a growing economy. And it was based on a very interesting premise, which was that status in the economy was no longer ascribed. It was gained or sought and gained in, in market competition. And capital started being produced out of savings. It wasn't limited by land. And anybody who was successful in the market, um, well, one way or the other, could gain very large wealth, and they did. And so a completely new class was founded, uh, limited, the capitalists whom Marx hated. But in the process of creating this dynamic economy, they also created an industrial working class. Uh, they created urbanization. They created, as they were, um, as economies developed, a huge demand for education, um, which they could see was in their own interests, and political demands. And in a long, complex process, there began to emerge a citizenry which was sufficiently educated, sufficiently organized, and sufficiently mobilized to demand widespread um, voting rights. And that's exactly what happened in Britain and America um, in the course of the 19th century and in other countries where that was not repressed by the old aristocracy, as in Germany. And we began to see the emergence of a new form of state in which representative democracy went with increasingly wide suffrage and ultimately in the first part of the 20th century, universal suffrage. So this was both directly because of rising prosperity and rising demands for inclusion that went with that in a society that no longer believed in ascribed status, which had a more universal view of people's rights, and in opposition to it. So I viewed I view democracy in my phrase as democracy and capitalism as complementary opposites. I also argue that um, capitalism, uh, well, let me put it slightly, democracy needs capitalism because for a democratic order to survive, there has to be some areas of life that are not directly within the purview of politics. There has to be economic activities that continue independently of politics so that people who lose power can continue to live and thrive within the economy. Uh, and therefore, losing power is not the end of the world for them. And they also don't control everything. So by contrast, in a fully socialized economy, again, we've got power and wealth combined. The control over the economy and the control over politics are the same thing. You can't possibly have democracy in such a system. And basically, there never has been. You look at China or the Soviet Union for these sorts of systems. So this created uh, a way in which the capitalist economy um, is good for democracy, uh, or at least wide suffrage. But there's an inverse uh, uh, of this, which is that a capitalism itself needs democracy, because otherwise what is going to emerge is a narrow oligarchy of wealthy people. And they're bound to, or almost bound, to try and run the economy in a way that limits competition, because that's they're the established forces. And democracy has repeatedly um, broken up uh, anti-competitive structures. The most famous example was in the early 20th century with the antitrust movement in the US. And it was a dem democratic revolt against uh, a capitalist oligarchy. So I argue that these two systems, apparently very similar, 
capitalism, obviously not egalitarian like democracy. Uh, but the two systems fit together pretty well, can support each other pretty well, and they need each other. Yes. And, and in fact, just uh, shifting gears a little bit deeper into the, the core thesis of your book, you claim that there there is, in fact, uh, what you call a, a democratic recession. Um, you uh, So the question would be, when you look around the world, where do you see that to be the case? What are some of the countries where you see democracy receding? Well, let me talk about the, the democratic recession and what's going on. Um, obviously, um, it's a worldwide phenomenon. Uh, we see it all over the world after the 19, uh, you know, 1980s with the collapse of the Soviet Union. In that decade and thereafter, there was an enormous increase in the number of democracies. And one felt this was a new world of, of democracy. Uh, uh, um the this was very much the proposition of uh, of uh, Francis Fukuyama's famous piece on the end of history that we, we liberalism broadly and democracy in particular had won now in the last 15 20 years or so this has reversed in there have been many emerging and developing countries where autocracy has won um, you know, it's difficult to remember the hopes for democracy in in Russia not 25, 30 years ago. Um, we see erosion in a really important places like India and Turkey. Brazil has had a quite a bout with uh, um, with an authoritarian president. We see a liberal democracy in Central and Eastern Europe, notably in Hungary and Poland. But it's not just in these countries. Um, Freedom House in particular has pointed to the remarkably poor state of democracy in the United States today, which is, after all, the most important democratic country. Um, we've seen in the UK the rise of uh, a certain sort of demagogic populism in the Brexit campaign, which, of course, can be seen as an expression of democracy. But it was, in my view, and I think most people who know anything about it, unbelievably ill-informed and, and erratic democracy from which we will suffer for many decades. And that risks the danger of what I think of as the cycle of populism, that bad policy begets bad policy because over time, as the economy performs ever worse, people get more desperate. And you can see that very, very much in Latin America over many, many decades. So this is the democratic recession, and I can list many other countries where authoritarian, uh, autocratic figures uh, have done well, are doing well. Um, you know, many people think the next president of France will be Marine Le Pen, who comes from a fascist background. Uh, so all this is pretty disturbing. It makes you wonder whether uh, the system is stable. In addition to all this. There's lots of evidence from popular surveys that quite a number of people, including in our societies and notably among the young, are sort of very tempted by the idea of a strong leader who will sort everything out. And that's very much the way um, the erosion of democracy goes. And obviously the most important of all figures of that kind was Donald Trump, who fortunately failed but did try to overthrow the result of the last presidential election. 
you've anticipated our next question to you perfection because of course a central character in the book the crisis of democratic capitalism and in broader conversations about democratic regression especially here in the united states is of course former president donald trump um whose candidacy whose presidency and whose post-presidency um has seen attacks on the institutions of american democracy um in your mind what makes trump such a uniquely destructive force Actually, I don't think he's uniquely destructive. I think he's characteristically destructive of this sort of populism. But, um, and in fact, we've been very, very fortunate, I think. Maybe not, but I think we've been very fortunate that he's actually so incompetent at it. Um, One could easily imagine a more determined, systematic, well-organized, would-be autocrat who could have done a much better job of subverting American democracy than he did. But obviously what's important about him is that it's in the United States, uh, which was, you know, in the the great crises of the 20th century. This has not been the first crisis of democratic capitalism. The previous ones occurred in war to a large degree, particularly the Second World War and the Cold War. Um, in the previous, in those crises, the United States was, what's and all, the pivotal power defending democracy. And without it, it really not quite clear what would have happened. Um, so the U.S. is central. Um, the backsliding by the U.S. legitimizes, unfortunately, backsliding everywhere else. There's no doubt in my mind, it's not a theme I stress because these countries are not central to my book. There's no doubt in my mind that many would be at actual despots look to what has happened in the US and say, well, if the Americans who do can do this, why can't we? I mean, one of the most salient examples is the very close relationship between Narendra Modi and Donald Trump which validated what Modi was doing in uh, subverting the law, um, oppressing journalists, and so forth. This is this is the way this starts. And of course, the unique thing about Trump is that uh, in ways that I will never fully understand, he obviously is a figure, um, a billionaire, TV, um, a star, uh, 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 a great salesman who could seduce a a very important number of Americans, huge numbers of Americans, where somebody else, some different sort of figure might have failed. So Trump is dangerous in himself, though could certainly be far more dangerous, but he's dangerous above all because he works. His style of politics worked so well for so long in the United States. Do you see the... Pluto populism that Trump embodied and presented as being the future of the Republican Party and leadership. So putting aside the fact that, you know, obviously President, former President Trump is currently leading most polls in the 2024 GOP primaries. But, but do you sort of anticipate this Pluto populism outlasting him? Well, I've been just looking at... Um, the politics of DeSantis, who is uh, um, deemed by, as far as I can see, is his most likely successor if he stumbles. And in a way, he's doing it um, more purely 
than even Trump. So the way I see this um, is uh, that what has emerged in in America is this is one way of thinking about it. But I have a long section on this. Is is um, is a is a plan. Uh, I don't know how well it worked out to take the underlying politics of the the southern states of the United States after the Civil War into the country as a whole. What was the what were those politics? So the ruling the the party um, in power um, pursues a sort of fairly uh, small state, low tax. Um, political um, uh, policy program, um, but that's not the prime focus of discussion. Um, Trump didn't run on low taxes; he delivered them. He didn't run on them, or or, or slashing the the welfare state. He he sort of pretended to, but didn't do anything about that. But he did deliver some crucial low tax policies, which obviously the donors were, the 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 billionaires were very happy about, particularly the low corporation taxes. But what he ran on was essentially cultural issues. Um, in the South, historically, of course, the core cultural issue has always been about race. But there are many more in addition to the racial issues hidden behind the table or sometimes not even hidden very much. There are issues relating to um, uh, sexual behavior, um, to gender politics, so-called woke um, gender immigrants, immigration and so forth. It's a whole slew of cultural resentments and anxieties are made a central part of the program of this sort of party. And that was crucially, of course, what the Nazis did. I'm not, by the way, comparing these parties with the Nazis, of course not. I'm just pointing out that was the coalition they put together in the end between the wealthy conservatives who put them into power finally and the people they brought in to vote. And the crucial thing is this blending of the interests of the of core people in the party uh, in economic um, freedom and above all low taxes with uh, this, these cultural and other anxieties which are ferociously promoted and which in my view, as I argue in my book, have also been exacerbated by the way uh, extreme, more extreme wings of the progressive movement have operated, uh, what I call the Brahmins. So the result is a political coalition, which DeSantis seems a genius at bringing together, of people who have profound um, cultural resentments with that sort of political program. And I argue in the book that quite a few of these people who've shifted though not all, to the to increase sensitivity of culture, are also economically somewhat disappointed. And they don't believe the government can do anything about it. A crucial element is this view that government is completely ineffective and therefore the cultural basis for politics makes sense uh, and the coalition they have formed with the, the wealthiest makes sense for them too. And that's Pluto populism. And it does seem to me a characteristic 
of extreme right politics in many countries, though not all, but certainly in America. I would like to ask one sort of quick follow-up um, on the United States, and then we'll pivot back to, to broader issues. Um, the There are people on the left in American politics who have advocated, for instance, court stacking, um, adding Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico states in order to uh, potentially, but not necessarily, gain four more senators, um, abolishing the filibuster, and then declaring national emergencies on a long list of um, progressive priorities. Do you see these as similarly... Um, undemocratic as some of the things put forward by the right, or is that a false comparison? There are separate things. Some of them might be undemocratic and and some of them might be unconstitutional. Uh, there's obviously, it's important to be sensitive uh, to the question of what we mean by democracy. So I would say that a democracy is not just uh, about voting. And it just and it can't be. That is to say, if it were just about voting, one could say, well, whoever won the elections would be entitled to do whatever they liked. And if people were entitled to do whatever they liked, democracy wouldn't last very long. Because one of the things that would disappear would be elections. So the broader point is that a functioning democracy must operate between within rules and norms of behavior that are agreed to be fair and just and reached by what are agreed to be fair and just procedures, um, which are inevitably specific to certain countries. Now, you can certainly argue that the, the rules and norms of a particular democracy don't look very democratic, and the ones in the US were never designed to be fully democratic. Um, that's just how it is. And they are, I would have say, in certain important respects, defective, but they are the rules and norms that make this society work, make this very diverse, huge country work, because they're the rules and norms people can agree on. Now, um, so the question I would have about any of those policies is, of what is being proposed is is the democracy, is, are the people who are elected democratically actually acting in ways that would subvert the democracy itself by subverting or destroying some absolutely fundamental principles that uphold that democracy? Now, in the cases you uh, mentioned, that those things could at least be discussed. But I would have thought that if you added all those together, this would also begin to look like pure majoritarianism without restraint, and the aim of which is to destroy their opponents. And if the aim of, of what you're trying to do is to destroy your uh, opponents, and the, your opponents are operating within the rules of the game, which is itself a very complicated question, in America particularly complicated, then I don't regard it as legitimate because the, the essence of a democracy is you play by the rules in the knowledge that when you win, you win, and when the other side wins, it wins, and nobody actually tries to destroy the other side. So that would be my my answer to, the, to doing all of that stuff. Now, is there some of this? Yeah, it seems to me statehood for D.C., um, Puerto Rico I know much less about it, is obviously right and proper proper uh the 
the uh, the filibuster rule protects both sides, but it wouldn't be undemocratic to get rid of it. But you'd have to accept that that means if the other side wins, they can do it to you. Would you really like that? And messing around with the Supreme Court, which is obviously a very problematic institution, to put it mildly, but if you mess it about, you're getting rid of the, or you're undermining, dramatically politicizing the the ringmaster of the whole system. I think that's pretty dangerous. Yes, and let's try to uh, zero in a little bit on uh, Europe now. Uh, obviously, uh, the EU is, uh, well, it's not, uh, challenge or it's not undergoing the kind of democratic recession that you've diagnosed in other countries or even countries within the EU, but, but the EU as a whole cannot be said to have a perfect democracy, right? There's this uh, democratic deficit uh, within it. Do you do you see the EU uh, kind of evolving towards a better form of supranational democracy over time? Do you, uh, is, is the EU part of the uh, is is it one of the countries that you diagnose as being part of the democratic recession? I don't <clears throat> focus very much on the EU. Maybe I should. I, except in one context, um, with an idea which I've drawn from Yasha Monk, who has of course written a lot on democracy and and is uh, of German origin. Uh, so. This is the uh, uh, idea of undemocratic liberalism, uh, which is that the EU, you could say, in a much, much lower level in, of significance, the World Trade Organization too, is an international agreement uh, legally established by sovereign states through uh, uh, sovereign legislative processes in all the member states but the EU has a collective sovereign power. There's no doubt it does. Um, again, there are processes for it, but there's no, there's no powerful, direct democratic um, presence within the EU. It operates largely through states and the, and the interplay of states. Uh, this is not... You know, if you look at the Senate in the US, it's not so different. But anyway, I won't go in, into into that. And it, and it poses constraints on states um, that might well be, and indeed often is, resented by citizens of those states. So in that case, it might be seen from within the, the state, um, uh, within the, uh, for citizens within states, not only might be, but is viewed as undemocratic, and authoritarian. Um, and this then gets you to a really profound problem, which I do discuss, and is just one of those many huge difficulties of running the actual world. Uh, and the point is pretty simple. Um, if you're a citizen of a state uh, in Europe, most of them small, you are very, very dependent on the decisions taken by other states. Um, your prosperity, your um, your opportunities will be determined probably quite as much by other what other powerful states as by your own. Now, uh, it seems to me completely reasonable, though our Brexiters didn't really understand this, for people to say, particularly after the history of the First and Second World Wars, that sovereignty. Um, 
even democratic sovereignty doesn't mean very much if uh, our neighbors can bully us, conquer us, this is extreme, of course, or stop taking our goods, stop allowing us to travel in their countries and all the rest of it. What does sovereignty then mean? Wouldn't it be more sensible to reach an agreement in which we all uh, are bound by rules, including the most powerful, very valuable, to treat one another decently and properly, to treat our businesses in the same way as they treat their businesses. As a result, we'll have a bigger market, we'll be more prosperous, we can move freely, we can choose jobs freely uh, across Europe, our children can move. We have opportunities we could never get if we were just stuck in the Netherlands, say, um, and we'll be also more secure. So this is a trade-off. As a result, yes, as individual citizens of the Netherlands, we control less of our fate, but altogether, we have a much better fate than we would if we were all on our own. That is, if you like, is the deal. Uh, and the same deal, of course, ar arose in joining the WTO, though it's much less binding. Now, my view is that's a perfectly reasonable deal. As a broad proposition, states should be able to do that. And citizens of states should be entitled, though I think it's very foolish, to pull themselves out of it. And the British did, which showed that they were sovereign and they had a sovereign right to be stupid. But that's a sovereign right. But I think it's reasonable also to say, in fact, uh, I'm writing about this at the very moment, to say, well, if we are going to move so many important decisions to this higher level, and they are becoming more and more important over time to us, we need a greater democratic say in them. And maybe we should start thinking about having a properly elected, not just a parliament, but uh, a properly elected government, which will continue to have very limited powers. Uh, most of the powers will still be um, settled and rest, settled within member states, but that elected government will be accountable to us all. And that's essentially what happened in the US when they set up at the present constitution. So maybe the EU is moving towards such a constitutional moment, but one has to respect the fact that these countries are far more diverse with far more ancient histories um, than the states of the US were, and do, pulling this off is very difficult. So this gets to the limits of democracy and why you might have supranational institutions. Nothing in my view, this is sort of the most fundamental proposition I have in this book in a way, nothing, no right, if you like, no legitimacy is ever unlimited. It's always about seeking balance. I just feel that once you get into the autocratic mode of politics, then you've you've lost the balance. You're you're in a catastrophic state. I don't feel, I really don't feel that the EU structured as it's now can be viewed as anything close to an autocracy. Martin, thank you so much for joining us for this podcast today. Uh, the Crisis of Democratic Capitalism is available for sale in local bookstores, and we will link to it in our show notes. Again, not an Amazon link because we support publishers. Um, Martin, thank you very much. Great pleasure. Really fun. So, um, unusually, our guests are out, but also 
Jorge is out, so I will be doing the super sub role in the outro with you, Julian. Julian, I managed to catch up with a conversation you had with Martin Wolf, but uh, as you were in the room with him, or in the digital room with him, I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. Well, I'd first like to thank you for reminding me to actually select a super sub for my fantasy rugby team this weekend. Um, I've got to make sure I stay in first place. This was probably one of the more fascinating discussions that we've had with some of our guests, not just because of the, the range, but I think also the, the personal nature um, of the importance of democracy and capitalism uh, on an individual basis. You know, we talk a lot about, and I think this is a, a common trait in the US media especially, we sort of talk about democracy and lofty ideals and lofty terms. We talk about institutions, but we don't personalize the significance of democracy and democratic ideals and respect for the person as much as perhaps we should. And I think that really came across in the early stages of our conversation with Martin. Um, and, you know, I think part of, you know, that, that's in the introduction of his book and talking about his, his personal journey uh, and his family and his connection and uh, the significance of democracy for his life. Um, that was one element that I thought was quite interesting and one that I think should be stressed more in these sort of general conversations when we talk about governance in society. But I think the other, uh, the other element that really stood out to me was the extent of the symbiosis or the symbiotic relationship between democracy and capitalism and how democracy at its best can prevent the excesses of capitalism yeah. from tearing down society and equally Capitalism at its best can sort of correct for some of the negative impulses of democracy, namely, so tip for instance, the majoritarian um, aspect, which we talked a little bit about uh, as we got towards the Patreon section. So I think understanding the relationship between democracy as a system of political governance and capitalism as a system of economic governance and governing the exchange um, between individuals and the exchange of goods and services and how those two forces interact to shape society I mean, this was a fascinating conversation and the book truly is a great read and I highly encourage everyone to, to go out and get it. It's interesting because, as I think you pointed out here, a lot of people will make the case for democracy and you'll get all those worried papers about the state of democracy, but not so much for the state of capitalism. You'll be, you get people denouncing capitalism and its excesses, but you'll rarely get people making the case for it and even less so people making the case and connecting it with democracy. So I think that's a very interesting venture that uh, Martin Wolf got into. About majoritarianism, so before going, going to that, another thing which is interesting is I think in the kind of early 2000s, there was a very triumphant version of this kind of argument that was laid out when people said, well, you know, let's, let's include China in the WTO because trade will bring democracy. And you know, and the idea of trade will, will bring capitalism, and capitalism will bring capitalism, and sorry, capitalism will bring democracy. And that theory was shaken up a little bit at the same time that we our trust in capitalism, sh you know, collapsed after the two thousand eight crisis, and we had a, a strong and often legitimate suspicion of capitalism. But you mentioned a point about majoritarianism here, which I think is quite interesting. Um, he, he he rightly says that you know democracy isn't just majoritarianism, uh, and I agree with that. You know, there's some very smart thinkers who made this analysis uh, two centuries ago. Obviously, one of the most famous ones is um, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, who came to America and made this brilliant analysis of American um, the democracy and made you know the case about 
how we need to avoid the tyranny of a majority, and that was a big danger in, in democratic systems where you get a majority that is imposing its will on a minority. But I actually personally think that in some aspects, we've gone a little too far in our kind of overcorrection um, to avoid the tyranny of the majority. I'm actually, in my opinion, there is a situation nowadays where a lot of people feel that no matter who they vote for, political change is excessively constrained by bodies which are unelected. Now, I'm not making the case of getting rid of unelected bodies. I think unelected bodies um, uh, make sense, you know. Uh, But when you get a situation where monetary policy is heavily under the influence, of course, of of central banks, and and it's very hard for for politicians to have any impact on this, when you get an increasing importance of, of judges on, on, on what politicians can and cannot do, um, when you get the increasing influence of NGOs, when you get this entire framework or in, international organizations, all these bodies which are unelected create in what seems to be in some cases kind of an excessive overcorrection um, of fears of major, majoritarianism. And I think we have to be a little careful with that. Um, politically, sometimes it translates in you know, a kind of defiance towards anything that looks like a referendum, for example, because there's a there's a concern that the people can't be trusted to write for, for the to vote for the right option. Um, I personally think it's a little dangerous to consider that the people you know can't be trusted, and that we need to build political systems in which you know the the, the impact the electoral the impact of electoral politics is as limited as possible. So that's I think my kind of my kind of criticism a little bit is I agree that we can't go too far in majoritarianism. I personally think that in some 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 cases here in Western democracies, we've gone a little too far in our overcorrection. There's so many interesting threads to that. And you know what springs to mind immediately is uh, Sir Paul Tucker's book on elected power, which is about the influence of central banks. And he's written another book recently um, on a, in a similar vein about global politics and some of the institutions shaping our world. And I, th- I think, you know, when this came through in the conversation, it comes through in the book as well, the need to find a balance between having the feedback element, as Martin refers to it, and the fact that both capitalism and democracy share two core elements that are very important for each one independently, but also uh, symbiotically, which is the feedback. At elections, you have votes that determine whether a government is doing a good job or a bad job, uh, well, Obviously, that's a simplification, but you're, the voters are able to provide feedback to their government. And similarly, in a market, if you're charging too much or your product is of poor quality, uh, customers will provide feedback in the form of diminished sales. So you're constantly getting feedback. Independent institutions don't necessarily, especially ones that are appointed, don't have that element of feedback, um, which can mean that they're on a on the plus side. Um, it means that they're able to consider the longer term and the the broader horizon. But on the negative side, it means that they're not actually responsive to situations on the ground because they're not having regular feedback from the marketplace or from the voting public. And so I think one element that really uh, comes across in some of the arguments Martin was making in terms of his policy proposals is how do we reshape um, voting to consider the long term? And And I'll tease some of our listeners here. There is one proposal that he has in there about changing uh, the way we vote away from one person one vote into say if you are a mother you are able to vote you get multiple votes because you're of your children Um, and that in turn adding a sort of long-term perspective which can perhaps counteract some of the 
impulses to be short-termist when we're voting every two years as it is here in the United States um, or every four or five years in other countries around the world. Because I think, you know, we're trying to find the balance um, for fans of Aristotle. They're immediately thinking about constitutional democracy as he outlined it and finding a balance between the popular will uh, and the need for, well, aristocracy in the Greek sense. Thanks a lot, Julian. I think that's going to wrap up our conversation with Martin Wolf, this episode on the health of democracy and capitalism. Uh, we've teased it a few times, but if you want to listen to the full conversation, you can go on our Patreon and support us for as little as five euros a month and essentially double the uncommon decency content you get every week. Thank you so much, Jorge and Julian, for doing the interview. Um, and to all of you, see you next week.